This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, I've got Chad Bird with us. We're going to be discussing Jesus in the Old Testament. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. We've got an exciting program for you today. we got a new Lutheran friend that has come on the podcast. Always excited, as you guys know, a bit of a closet Lutheran myself. I love uh, Lutheran theology and history. I enjoy uh, much of the tradition. So we're going to be diving into Christ in the Old Testament, looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Before we do that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the channel, hit the like. Uh, but also, if you want to be notified of all the different things that we have coming up with Remnant Radio, you want to support the channel, make sure to subscribe in that uh, email a newsletter that can be found in the description of this video. If you check that out, you can find all the different ways to support, get updates for all the things that we have going on. Uh, can all be found there in the email. Uh, without further ado, I want to introduce you to my co-host, my partner in crime. This is Michael Roundtree. Michael. Tell us about Jesus in the Old Testament, man. You excited? He, he's there, man. He's everywhere. <laughs> so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today is Jesus in the Old Testament. Good, uh, good book. And Chad Bird, our guest today, wrote this book. Uh, it's called The Christ Key. We're going to talk about that. And uh, before we talk about that, and by the way, this is a really cool like book. If you could judge a book by its cover, you would have to read this. It's it, it's a really cool design. I mean, you really makes you rethink the 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 colloquialism. You can't judge a book by a cover because when you have a cover that's that cool, you're kind of like, no, judge my book by its cover, please. <laughs> so, uh, so Chad, before we jump into your book, The Christ Key, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your ministry. Yeah, yeah. First of all, thanks for the invitation to be on the show. I've been looking forward to the conversation. So uh, I am a, a scholar in residence at 1517. 1517 is a Christian nonprofit that uh, is all about getting the message of the gospel out there, that we are free and forgiven for the sake of, of Christ alone. We produce all kinds of biblical, apologetic, theological, historical materials for, for the church. So I've been working full time for them for, uh, well, since late 2019. Uh, my background is in Hebrew in the Old Testament and a little bit of pastoral experience, uh, a little bit of uh, experience in the School of Hard Knocks. So I kind of bring all that together. And uh, the way I like to describe what I do is I, I teach the Bible with an Old Testament accent. So that's in podcast form, video form, or write about a book a year or something like that. And uh, just basically introduce people to the world of the Old Testament uh, from a, uh, a Christ-centered perspective in order that they can read everything from Genesis to Malachi in one way or another talking about Christ and his work. 
Well, that's fantastic. It's one of my favorite podcasts, the 1517, the Thinking Fellows. Uh, that podcast is fantastic. Theocast, are, those are my top two podcasts um, that I listen to regularly. So highly recommend it. I'll be honest, uh, Chad, was not seeing that coming. When you were like, yeah, I work for 1517. I was like, Whoa, that's cool. Uh, sometimes you listen <laughs> to these guys and you're like, oh, wait a second. I know this guy. Uh, anyway, so uh, super exciting. Uh, good, good to have you on the program talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. Tell us a little about the book. Why did you choose to write this book? What was the inspiration for it? Yeah, so I I wrote a version of this book many many years ago. Maybe every maybe every author has done this. They have like an unpublished book on their computer that's been there for years or decades. So I had a an unpublished book, a very very long, very wordy book that I'd written. I guess probably in my early thirties. Uh, never did anything with it. And then I I wanted to take the material that I had worked on in the past and everything I'd learned since then and condense it down into kind of a an introduction to this. This is by no means like the, uh, you know, the, the end all of everything there is to say about Christ in the Old Testament, but I wanted to at least give the reader uh, thematically and through various kinds of other su- subjects, uh, an introduction to how you, how you read the Old Testament, asking what does this have to say to us about, about Christ, about his work, about his person, all those sorts of things. Wow. So, uh, I just kind of sketched it out and uh, worked on it in 2020. Uh, I didn't have anything else to do in 2020, so I actually wrote two books in 2020, <laughs> and one of them was uh, one of them was was the Kreisky. So uh, was was happy with the way it turned out. Uh, I think it's been pretty well received in in the church. Heard back from a lot of people who, for them in a way, it was it was the entry point into a, a very different way of reading the Old Testament. They've been kind of raised in a in a moralistic. Uh, reading of the Old Testament, which is, of course, prevalent in the church. And so this was the first opportunity for many of them to actually read these narratives and prophecies and Psalms as actually all about Christ and his work for us. Amen. Okay, so you use the term in one of your, maybe your opening chapter, you talk about the term uh, intertextuality, and you consider Mm -hmm. this principle important in discerning Christ in the Old Testament. So could you explain what that is for our viewers? Yeah, so basically, uh, in, its, in its kind of clearest, simplest view, intertextuality is the, the way that texts relate one with another. And of course, the way I'm using it in this book is especially how the New Testament and the Old Testament text interact one with another. Although I also point out many examples where you have within the Old Testament itself, text interacting one with another, where, for instance, Isaiah will allude to the book of Genesis or Judges or Second uh, Samuel or, or something like that. So basically, it's, it's text that are reflecting one another. Um, in, 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 in church, we sometimes talk about how Scripture interprets Scripture. And this is kind of that same idea, that there are texts within the Scriptures which reflect one another, maybe through quotation, through allusion, through the use of similar language. And what's what's fascinating to me is to see how these this interplay of two texts with one another actually opens up both of these texts so that they both are enriched by this interaction. And so what, a lot of what I do is I'll show how the New Testament is quoting or alluding to Old Testament text to bring out the Christological significance of those texts, or sometimes how a later Old Testament writer will refer to something earlier in the Old Testament and show how those two texts are interconnected. So intertextuality is a, is a broad field, but I'm using it specifically then to talk about how it leads us to this Christ-centered way of understanding the Old Testament. 
Okay. And I'm going to do a follow-up on that. Could you give us an, an example of like a, a New Testament text that's maybe kind of building on an Old Testament text or storyline in, in the way that you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of examples that we could, that we could go to. Uh, I'll take one that's it's often missed. So Romans 8 is a lot of people's favorite chapter uh, and for understandable reasons. But there's one line in there kind of toward the end, toward that, right at the beginning of that famous section about nothing separates us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, where I would argue that Paul is alluding to Genesis 22, the famous near sacrifice of Isaac, because he says something like, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Ah, now, that, oh, verb, that. That, that verb in Greek for spare is also found in the Greek translation of the Septuagint of Genesis 22, where he where Abraham did not spare Isaac, his son, his, his only son. Now, if you understand that Paul knew the Septuagint, and if you're reading Genesis 22 of the Septuagint, all of a sudden, wow, you're like, oh, I see. Paul mm. is alluding back to the Akedah, to, to Genesis 22, and, and asking us basically, hey, read Genesis 22 in view of Christ and read Christ in view of Genesis 22, because this is going to then open up a better understanding of Christ as the seed of Abraham and the new and the better, the new and the better Isaac. I mean, that's just, that's one example. You could multiply wow. this over and over and over, especially when you get to the gospels and, you know, Jesus, he was a, he was a Jew. He, he his mind was filled with the old, with the old Testament. And so he's always incorporating old Testament images and even geography into his, uh, into his teaching. Uh, and by, Taking that and reading it in light of the Old Testament, all of a sudden you realize how how interconnected uh, this these these this web of the scriptures really is. That's fantastic. Uh, tell us a little bit about you mentioned uh, in your book that the first five books of the Bible are in a sense a mini Bible. Um, I, I've heard. Uh, I think Tim Mackey speak of Genesis in a similar way that everything that can be found in the Bible can be found in Genesis in seed form. Is that what you mean? Maybe maybe unpack that kind of idea that everything can, or that it's a mini Bible there in those first five books. Yes, I picked up on this uh, when I was uh, in my graduate work. I was at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. I studied with with Jewish scholars there and spent a lot of time in rabbinic text. And one of the things the rabbis said over and over is that everything that the prophets said was basically building on extrapolating from the Torah. Uh, so the Torah was understood to be the foundation upon which everything else was built. And uh, ironically, uh, you see the same thing, same thing in Martin Luther's introduction to I believe it's to Psalm 90, the Psalm of, Psalm of Moses, where he says something similar that everything that was said after Moses has already been said or hinted at by Moses. So there's an unpacking of what is there. I mean, all the major themes are there, even in Genesis itself. You've got creation. So look at the first three chapters. You figure, why are we here? Uh, and uh, who is God? And, and what went wrong? And what's the solution? And so all of this theology, soteriology, anthropology is embedded just within the first three chapters. And then you, you build on that and you have kind of the, the narrative, patriarchal narrative that, that the rest of the scriptures are building upon. And then, of course, you have the Exodus, which is huge in the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament. And then you have the whole temple, I mean, the whole tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifice, all of that in not just the not just the Leviticus, but elsewhere. Well, all of these themes, everything from creation to the tabernacle to the Exodus and everything else that's in the Torah, all of that is going to be unpacked from Joshua onward. 
So uh, you could say that uh, everything from everything after Deuteronomy is, in a sense, an inspired commentary on the Torah, because everything is building upon this historical foundation that we have in, in those first five books. And so that's why it's a, it's a mini Bible. Uh, I always say back to the Torah, back to the Torah, because as, as one rabbi put it, you know, turn it and turn it again and everything's in it. Things just keep falling out of the Torah. The more that you turn it over and over, it's, it's just packed with, with so many riches. Well, I guess my next question would be, if we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament and everything can be found in those first five books, how much Jesus do we have in the Old Testament there? Uh, that would be, I, I would think, the crux of all of this, because we have so many people, you know, uh, in the, the Jewish community who can't see Christ in the Old Testament. So, so maybe could you help us unpack where you would see Christ in the Torah? Yeah, so I, I, there's a lot of places we could start. I guess I would start with, we could start with Genesis 1. I mean, we could do the whole John 1, Genesis 1. The beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, because already in the opening opening verses, we see what some scholars refer to as complex monotheism, where you have uh, you have God, we would say God the Father, creating, but he He speaks. So his Word is there. And of course, then you have the, the Ruach Elohim, you have the Spirit of God already in, in verse 2. So who God is, is already revealed those first couple of verses. But then specifically Christ, I would go to, for instance, of course, Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And you could trace this seed theology all the way from Genesis 3.15 to the Abraham line, the seed of Abraham. You can talk about Isaac being the seed of Abraham, Isaac being the seed of Abraham. Uh, and of course, going on to Jacob, you've got also, I talk about this in the book, the appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, and those begin already in Genesis 2. You've got Genesis 16 with the messenger of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, that appears first to Hagar. And then you have the same messenger appearing in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. And since the second century writings of Justin Martyr, that messenger has been understood to be the, the messenger of the Father. He's the son of God who's appearing in this temporary, temporary visible form in order to interact with people. So you could go there. I mean, and then you could talk about, oh, my goodness, you know, the gospel of Leviticus. It's Leviticus just is, is packed with everything we need to know about the sacrifice of Christ and the, and the priesthood of Christ. And you kind of have this what I sometimes will call a architectural Christology in the tabernacle itself as a totality. And then all the various parts of the tabernacle from the altar to the uh, uh, the showbread and bread of the presence to the, the Ark of the Covenant. On and on, you could you could go. It's 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 basically him as a, as a king, him as a priest, him as the messenger of the Father, uh, the seed, the sacrifice. It's all reflected there in one way or another in those first five books. Okay, uh, well then let's get practical. So you mentioned Leviticus, and uh, and you're saying, man, it's so rich with. Uh, with, you know, talking about Jesus. And, I mean, clearly not directly talking about Jesus, but talking about Jesus. And I can understand, I, I can imagine a lot of people, our viewers or listeners thinking, man, I've, I've tried to read Leviticus. And like, e even if I know, okay, the sacrifices are all foreshadowing Jesus, it's, uh, it's tedious. What advice would you have for people reading a book like Leviticus to see Christ in the Old Testament and uh, and maybe in a devotional sense, really connect with God over these kinds of books, because I can imagine a lot of people feeling such cultural distance from it uh, that they don't know how to connect with it. Yeah, and I, I totally get that. I totally appreciate that. Uh, 
several years ago in, in, in our podcast, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, we, we went through Leviticus. And uh, I, I was glad that we, did, we spent a lot of time in it, verse by verse, working our way through the entire, through the entire book because of this very issue. I mean, it, it is. I, it, it, it's confusing. There's a lot of details, a lot of what seems to be unnecessary details to us, a lot of focus on, you know, blood and guts and, and, all, the, and all the things. What, what helps me, what helped me years ago uh, when I was first kind of getting into this was the work of John Kleining, who's a uh, Australian Lutheran uh, biblical theologian who's written a, a commentary on Leviticus, which, which I highly recommend. And his work kind of introduced me to the ritual world of Leviticus. And once you kind of have a few key things in mind, it, it be, be, begins to be possible to read Leviticus in a devotional sort of way. It's for instance, think of it this way. When it came to setting up a way of, uh, of atonement, God could have instituted any number of things. One thing that he could have done was required that the sinner shed his own blood if, uh, if he sins uh, in you know, whatever form that might have taken. But he didn't. God set it up to where there was a substitute. There was a sacrifice, be it a dove or a goat or a sheep or, or whatever it might be. That very setup where that, that one not guilty dies for the sake of the guilty, that in itself preaches the gospel to us already receive that God is setting up a system of atonement whereby the sinner doesn't pay for his own sin and innocent victim sheds blood to pay for that sin. Now that's reflected in any number of ways in Leviticus itself. But once you kind of have that key to unlock these sections of Leviticus, you're like, ah, now I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to see how this is reflective of, of the work of Christ. And then also just think about kind of the, the holy space and how, and how that works. So you have spheres of holiness. You have the Holy of Holies, and then you have the Holy Place, and then you have the forecourt. So holiness itself is set up to where there's these spheres or gradations of, of holiness. That in itself is also then a, a preamble to what is coming in the work of Christ. Because there's only so close the sinner can get to God in the Old Testament. If he's just a regular Israelite, he can get in the, in the forecourt. If he's a priest, he can get around the altar or in the holy place. If he's the high priest, he can get inside the holy of holies. So understanding that setup and its preparatory nature then allows us to be ready for the gospel, where Christ, our priest, our great high priest, enters into the holy of holies. And not just he, but then allows us with boldness and confidence in him to enter into the holy of holies itself. And even puts on our forehead uh, the divine name so that we have the status of high priest because we are in the high priest himself. I mean, that's just a couple examples. Uh, but beginning to understand kind of the the world of Leviticus and how the tabernacle is set up, how the priesthood is set up, how the sacrifices are set up, this becomes a, a way in which the text begins to not be kind of just dry ritual, but to, to preach the riches of the good news of atonement and forgiveness and divine access to us, all of which we have in, in Christ. Amen. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about, I mean, in some sense, you know, I talk to people, I, I feel like more often than not today in, in my cultural context, I find people trying to walk away from the Old Testament. You know, you got the Andy Stanleys out there that are kind of popularizing this idea that we're going to we're gonna unhitch the gospel, 
you know, gospel, um, not not to conflate with the law gospel distinction, but the gospel from the Old Testament. We're going to separate the New Testament from the Old Testament. We got the good stuff. We don't need all that old stuff. It's violent. It's vindictive. It's, you know, we, we don't we don't need all that. Um, and, and I find that when I communicate to my brothers and sisters in the faith that kind of have that worldview that's kind of in the water, and I articulate to them, like, there's so much of the New Testament that you're watching, like, on a black and white you know, small tube TV, right? Uh, with with you know two inch speakers. But if you begin to read the Old Testament and have un- and then go read the New Testament, you're suddenly watching the same picture. You might get the same picture, but now you're watching it in HD, 4K surround sound. Like it, it, it adds a layer of beauty to the New Testament message, knowing the historical context in which it, it flows from. It doesn't take away anything. If it, anything compounds it and adds it, but maybe I could ask the opposite question of not what do we lose when we you know, divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament because the New Testament's what matters. But but what happens when we divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament? Like, h- how ought we be reading these things together in a way that brings does does the New Testament bring beauty to the Old Testament? Maybe un- unpack that for us. Yeah, it, it certainly brings beauty to it, and it, it it clarifies a lot of things. Of course, I mean, it wasn't as if before the coming of Christ and his teaching, and really the the, the death and resurrection of Christ, it wasn't as if everybody just you know they they, they fully understood the. Uh, the, the, the Christ-centered nature, the Messiah-centered nature of the Old Testament. I mean, that's obvious in the ministry of Jesus himself. It's on the road to Emmaus when he begins to open up the the Old Testament. So you kind of have to have that 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 entry point, that key that unlocks it. It's all there, but until it actually happens, until the death and resurrection of Christ happen, then there's a lot of things that you just can't see. And of course, this is where the New Testament opens it up for us, not only in telling us about the saving work of Christ, but also supplying us with all the teachings of Christ and all the, the teachings of Paul and Peter and John and, and everybody else. These are adding great clarity and depth to what is in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not as if we're adding something to the Old Testament, but it's bringing out the riches that were, that were already there. And then, I mean, that were, that were known to some extent. It wasn't as if when, before Christ came, there wasn't any any teaching or thought or writing about the Messiah in the Old Testament. We have intertestamental literature which bears witness to what people were, were looking for and hoping for. And yeah, there was confusion out there. Some people thought there'd be two messiahs. Some people thought it'd be, you know, the priestly messiah or the regal messiah. There was confusion, but they were already reading these scriptures in anticipation of, of the Messiah. Now, what we have, of course, in the New Testament is this just this light that shines into the Old Testament that's going to illumine a lot of things that just weren't visible before. So, yeah, you read the New Testament in light of the Old and the Old in light of the New, and these two are going to do nothing but enhance and, and improve our reading of both both Testaments. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to aid each other in adding depth and adding color, adding light to what, what's already there. Okay, so you mentioned Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter twenty-four. Jesus is preaching Jesus throughout uh, from the text of the entire Old Testament, and uh, and then as we read the rest of the New Testament, we have examples of how the apostles interpreted the Old Testament, and they were paying attention to things like types and shadows, and uh, so Peter in Acts chapter one is quoting passages about David, you know. David calling down curses on his enemies and he's he's saying well that's about Judas and uh and so on and so uh there are those who say the way the apostles interpreted the old testament is how we should interpret the old testament 
So if they saw types and shadows there, we should see types and shadows there. And so there are those who, who are on that side. And then there are others who read the Old Testament and they read it in a more literal fashion. And they say, well, not so fast. You know, we have this literal land promise and uh, the Israel is going to literally come back to the land, literally going to rebuild a temple, literally reinstitute the sacrificial system and literally be at the center of the eschatological thousand years and so on. So I'm getting a little eschatological here uh, for our viewers. That means in times. But um, but these are two different lenses for reading the Old Testament. And then it's a spectrum because even those who are on the literal side do believe in typology typically. Uh, and, and so how do you recommend navigating that? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of approaches out there to it. Uh, I mean, even besides the one that you, that you mentioned, uh, I fall within the camp of those who uh, attempt to read the Old Testament the same way that the apostles read the Old Testament. And the reason I do that is because they were taught by Christ himself. And I don't think there's any better way, any better teacher or any better way to, to read the Old Testament than, than to do that. And I would argue, too, that along these same lines, with like with types and shadows and whatnot, that that what Jesus and then his students, the apostles, were doing wasn't radically new. Uh, you see within the Old Testament itself that there is a pattern way of, of viewing history. There's a pattern way of seeing God's plan of salvation unfold. And so typology, for instance, just to, to narrow in on that, typology did not come around when, you know, it wasn't like Jesus is like, hey, I have a new interpretive approach. Let's let's read the scriptures typologically. And then he taught that to the apostles. Uh, he was doing nothing more than what already happens in Genesis, where you have, for instance, Noah being portrayed as sort of a second Adam, or you have uh, Joshua portrayed as a second Moses, or you have David kind of serving as the paragon for all the kings who come after him. So there was already typology happening in the Old Testament. There's already a pattern way of viewing history in the Old Testament. And then what Jesus does is he kind of just adopts that and uh, gives us a, a better understanding of how this how this works. Now, this is a portrayal of salvation history. So back to your original question, though, I that's the way that I approach the text. I mean, I, I don't discount literal meanings, uh, but I don't I don't. I don't approach the scriptures so literally that I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the way that the, the apostles themselves uh, interpreted history, interpreted the events that are recorded there as leaning toward the Christ event that, that was to come. Mm -hmm. Well, help me on, on, with the tip, topology stuff, um, because I think some people really need a kind of a clear picture of what that is, because they see some of that taking place in their churches. Um, and then there are people who are trying to find patterns all over the place. Um, so so you, a couple of examples, right? The exegesis is what we talk about reading the text, the, the meaning out of the text, right? Eisegesis, reading into the text, right? Well, uh, a couple of other phrases we've heard of narcissus, reading yourself into the text, right? Uh, that's been quite popular <laughs> recently. And uh, 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 <laughs> this is one that we've invented here is, is charisma Jesus, trying to find spiritual gifts in places that they aren't in the Bible, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, we got gifts on the back of this camel that were given to some lady or David going down to the river and finding five stones, which are the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher somehow. You know, so so like there Have are people really who are. That one? Huh? Oh, my. You heard oh, that one before? Oh, bro. D you, hear me out on this, guys. Hear me out. OK. Um, 
I'm trying to do this straight face. <laughs> See, those five stones, bro, they were in the stream, and the stream represents the Holy Spirit. And oh, no. the Holy Spirit's really got to wear off the edges, all the rough edges of these stones. And if we're going to have gifts, they've got to be really, really, I'm just kidding. Okay, so, but, but nevertheless, not, not only have I heard it, I've, you know, I've, I have immersed myself into said stream and, and they see patterns everywhere. So like the, I feel like the hyper charismatic side is seeing patterns where there aren't patterns. I, I think that you could do the same thing with Rome. You know, they, they read and Michael put this in the show notes, but like Song of Solomon, you know, four, seven, you're all together beautiful. There is no flaw in you. And, and they look at that and they go, that's got to be Mary, right? The immaculate conception. And, and really, we just look for our theology. And if you're really good at pattern recognition, you can find the places to like insert your theology or yourself or, you know, whatever charismatic doctrine you want to you shove into the text at a time. What rules would you give us to allow these typological readings to not do harm to the text, but actually find Christ in the text in a meaningful way, the way I would assume that the Holy Spirit meant to install him into those texts. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for teaching me some new terms. I didn't, I didn't know some of these oh, terms. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> no, we're really good at Remnant Radio, making up terms. We got, we got your back. <laughs> I have to incorporate those in my, uh, in my future, future writing. So, uh, I have a couple of couple of approaches to typology that uh, I, that kind of keep me from kind of going off the, the deep end, uh, as as sometimes happens. And I think it's done from I mean it's it's done from sincere purposes. I mean, people are really wanting to find Christ uh, in, in all these places, but you know you can't look for him under every rock and stone, every rock and tree of the of the Old Testament. So number one, what I try and do is, as we were just discussing a couple of minutes ago, try and follow the pattern of the apostles themselves or of Jesus himself. First of all, if there's anything in the scriptures, in the New Testament, let's say, where you have a type that is being either hinted at or, or fully explored, like the Adam Christ typology, well, then, of course, run with that and see if there might be other places in the Old Testament where you see this same kind of patterning happen. So, for instance, uh, the, the flood and the ministry of Noah is related to to the work of our Lord. And of course, Adam is related to the work of our Lord. But one thing the New Testament doesn't do is it doesn't explore the connection between Adam and Noah. But because Adam and Noah are both connected to Christ and because there's hints, there's textual hints within the book of Genesis itself, then that's another avenue we can go to. We can, we can see how Adam is connected to Noah and perhaps then with this kind of typology, understand even more about the, the ministry of Jesus. So that's one thing, just kind of work off the types that we've already been provided in the New Testament and see how we can solidify those and even even expand those uh, because of connections that they have. And then, you know, if there's if there's things within the text itself, back to the, the Romans 8 uh, example that I gave earlier about God did not spare his own son. Well, there you go. Uh, there is something which doesn't explicitly say that Isaac was a type of, of the Messiah. But it sure hints at that. So take that hint and see what you see what you can do with it. Be faithful to the text, but follow it where it seems to be where it seems to be leading you. It uh, doesn't mean that you can just go to any narrative and begin to pick it apart and find types all over it. I mean, I I don't know that there's any hard and fast rules that are going to completely save us from that. But working with those types that are made explicit in the New Testament and then working with these hints of the text itself provides, I think, is is a is a helpful way to save us from going off the going off the deep end. Would, would you place like trying to point it to Jesus? Like that's been one of the things that I've tried to do 
when looking for typology is like, I don't want it to point to me. I don't want it to point to our city or our church. Like I want to make sure that we focus it on Christ instead of making church vision statement. Right. Yeah. Like (laughs) write it out and make it plain guys. Come on. Um, So, so like for one of the things that I've done is is, as much as possible, looking for typology in the old Testament is is trying to keep it about Jesus. How does this parallel with Jesus? And it really, I feel like it it removes a lot of the danger that I see with trying to make it about, you know, like a Mary making it about uh, our local church, making it about, I mean, certainly you can go with Israel and the church and say, okay, there's types there. Um, like there, there seem to be kind of you know, representative, but, but making maybe the, maybe making the types where the Bible makes the types. It seems like the new Testament authors are saying, Hey, let's look about Jesus. Hey, Hey, let's look in the old Testament. Let's see the church in these areas, but not, not over reading things that the, that the new Testament authors don't find types for. Is that a fair assessment? Would that be a fair kind of rule or guideline is to look for the types that the apostles are looking for rather than just inventing your own? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's that's one safe way to not go astray. In fact, I didn't even think of saying that because that that's the way I always take typology. I don't really think of it in terms of applying to to me or or something to do with you know one's spiritual life, but rather, yeah, I always take it to always take it to Christ or to His bride or to His bride, the church. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, even if you do, maybe you go a little bit overboard. At least you're taking people taking people to Christ. It reminds me of uh, so in in Luther's lectures on Deuteronomy. He uh, he he kind of goes he goes after allegory, the allegorical approach to the scriptures, which of course was just rampant in his day. And he says two different things. So on the one hand, he will just castigate uh, the uh, the allegorical approach to the scriptures, just talk about how terrible it is. And then he will also, in some of these chapters, include allegories at the very end of his discussion of whatever the chapter in Deuteronomy is. So he but then he will add something like he's listen if if you're gonna do if you're gonna do allegory then do it right by pointing it to Christ. So it's it's his way, I think, of trying to step back from allegory, but also realizing, hey, people are still going to do this. So, hey, if you're going to do it, then at least make sure that when you're allegorizing, you're taking people to the Son of God. You're taking him to you're taking them to the Savior, because at least then you're getting them to the destination that they need to be to. And I mean, you could say the same thing, same thing about about typology. It's good. So, uh, so I know that when you did your rabbinical or your studies with a bunch of rabbis and, uh, and one of the sayings that they had was the actions of the fathers are a sign for the sons. And so you talk about this in your book in the context of typology and how it helped you unpack more of Christ in the old Testament. So could you explain that saying number one and number two, how does that help us find Christ in the old Testament? Yeah, uh, I don't remember when I came across that phrase. It was when I was at Hebrew Union College. Maseavot Simon Lavanin. The deeds of the fathers are signed for the sons. And by that they mean it's kind of a it was a catchphrase by which they would interpret certain actions, especially of the patriarchs, and say they did this as a way of kind of blazing a trail that was going to be then followed by their descendants by the Israelites. And uh, the best example of this is in Genesis chapter 12. Abram and Sarai, Abram and Sarah, they are forced to go down into Egypt because of a famine. While they're there, of course, they get in trouble with Pharaoh. What does God do to Pharaoh? He sends plagues upon him. And then Abraham and Sarah leave laden with the riches of Egypt that they have acquired while they're there. So the rabbis would read that and they'd say, see, what's happening here is that the deeds of the fathers are assigned for the sons. 
what happened to Abram and Sarai in Egypt was a pattern. We might even call it a type for what was going to happen later to the children of Israel when, because of a famine, all of the family ends up down there in Egypt. Of course, Joseph is instrumental in getting them down there, but a famine is what reunites the family. And then eventually they get in trouble with Pharaoh. God plagues Pharaoh. And then, of course, in the Exodus, they leave laden with the spoils, spoils of Egypt. So this is a, a pattern way then of viewing history, where what happens with the patriarchs, the deeds of the fathers, then become a sign for the sons. And then you see this, you see this just uh, going, taken all the way in the prophets, because what happens there in people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and others is that they will read what happened in the Exodus as a sign of what is going to happen in the greater Exodus to come, in the cosmopolitan Exodus, where, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, God is going to bring people from north, south, east, and west, from all over the place. He's going to bring them home from from their exiles. Of course, Exodus, the new Exodus, the coming Exodus becomes a common theme in the rest of the rest of the prophetic literature, which all of which then is a way of readying us for what you have described in the Gospels, where first of all, John the Baptist takes people out to the wilderness because this is where they're getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. And he's baptizing in the Jordan River, of course, which is the, the, the river they cross, the Israelites cross when they entered into the promised land. And he's preparing them for the Messiah who's going to bring about this true and greater exodus, which is what Luke calls it in his, in his account of the transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about his exodus that he is going to accomplish there in Jerusalem. Yeah. So, he, so he that, uses that the word departure, right? But he, yeah. it doesn't yeah, look, yeah, it's usually translated in our departure, English but Bibles, it's translated departure, but it is the yeah. word that could be translated exodus is that kind of where you're going yes, with that yeah. luke is luke is hyperlinking that word like hey guys you see it here we're talking about christ's exodus is that kind of yes. what you're saying yeah 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 absolutely okay. and, and he's the only evangelist that does that i mean he's the only one who the others say that jesus was talking to moses and elijah <laughs> we're like well tell us more what are they talking about and luke's like well let me tell you they're talking about yeah, it's in, in Greek, it's his exodus, which he is to accomplish there in, in Jerusalem. And that word becomes, uh, it's a little word, but it becomes a huge door by which you can enter into the, an understanding of what uh, was happening in Jerusalem in light of this rich exodus background where you have the deeds of Israel, the deeds of the fathers becoming a sign of what is, what's going to happen later on with the, with the coming of Jesus. Hmm. Well, maybe... We're looking for types of Jesus. We're looking for you know, these little shadows and these types. And we, we read, we, we see the story about this, you know, ram caught in the thicket. We see this story, you know, oh, like Christ is made away. We see the atonement in Leviticus. But like, what about like Jesus, Jesus, like, like bodied Jesus, like the Christophanies and uh, what are often called theophanies of the Old Testament. How would you, how would you weigh into that? How important is that within the kind of reading of the Old Testament, because you could read the Old Testament and kind of uh, come across a story of the angel of the Lord. You could come across a story of, you know, my name is too great for you to know. And he's talking to, you know, uh, Samson's parents, you know, hanging out with Hagar, like dependent, you know, take your pick. And there's a bazillion of them in the Old Testament. How important is it for the Christian to read those and see Christ in those Christophanies? Well, maybe for the average viewer who's listening, maybe even explain what a Christophany is. Yeah, I think it's important uh, because it indicates that Christ is, well, how to put it? I think sometimes I, I, well, I had, I had this view uh, when I was growing up 
that Jesus was, as it were, kind of hanging out in heaven, waiting, biding his time until finally he could come down to, to this world and engage in his work of ministry. But he had to wait. We had to wait until you know the father said, okay, now go. And when you realize that he was always appearing in various ways in the Old Testament, you begin to realize oh, he was always the, the one sent by the father to engage with the people, to teach the people, to, to guide the people, to do all these things in his interactions with people in the Old Testament in such a way that, as one author puts it, he's, he's, he's trying on the clothes of his incarnation throughout the Old Testament. That's to say he's, he's temporarily appearing in some sort of visible form, oftentimes even a, a temporary physical form. And these are readying us for finally when he comes down in the incarnation and everlastingly takes on our, our human nature. So what I understand as a, as a Christophany is any number of things in the Old Testament. So Christophany is just an appearance of Christ. It's like a theophany. It's an appearance of God. And I've already mentioned one of those, and these are the messenger of the Lord, such as when he appears to Hagar and when he appears to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, this is also in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, referred to as the messenger in whom God puts his name, which I think is, is extremely crucial because God's name is connected with his very essence. And so God says, I'm going to send my messenger, which is often, in my opinion, wrongly or misleadingly translated angel. Malak in Hebrew just means messenger. God says, I'm going to send my messenger and I put my name in him. My name is in him. Well, that means that this is not some sort of created being. This is a messenger who shares God's godness, his, his divine nature by sharing his, sharing his name. But it isn't just the messengers, messenger narratives. Uh, it's also the word narratives. I mean, there are, there are, there are narratives where the word of the Lord comes to people and not just a word that's heard, but a word that's visible, such as when he appears to young Samuel at, uh, at the tabernacle or when he appears in Genesis 15 to Abraham. So when the word of the Lord comes, it's not just something that is for the ear, but it's actually for the eye. People see this manifestation of the word. Well, those are what's behind what John writes in John chapter one. The beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was was God. So you have. You have messenger appearances. You have the Son of God appearing as the Word. You have Him appearing as the glory of God. Uh, all of these are just different ways of describing the Father sending His Son to appear to people in whatever form that that might be. And these, when you when you're a Christian and reading the Old Testament, understanding that these to be Christ, like oh, so God has always wanted there to be this connection between people and His Son. And he's sending his son in, in a way that is preparing people for when he finally is going to send him to take on our human nature in, in the incarnation. So do you, do you understand, like, I, there are some hyperliteral readings, and, and I maybe lean into that one myself. In John 6, no one has seen the Father except he who comes down, right? Like, I, I, I've seen the Father, but no one else has seen the Father. And, and take that to mean that basically every theophany in the Old Testament of any kind is all, are all Christophanies. It's not as if... Uh, all of the manifestations in the Old Testament of any bodily form of divinity in any way, I, I would just say those are Jesus um, because Jesus is the way to the Father and he's manifest. So, so again, I'm, I'm not maybe not uh, hardly entrenched in this position, uh, but every time I look in the Bible, whether it's sitting on a throne, you know, in Isaiah, whether it's hanging out with Daniel, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, I will make you pregnant, you know, he's the Lord, the giver of life, right? So it's like when we, when we look at the Old Testament and we see, um, 
an embodied version of divinity. Um, and I say version, that's, that's a really modalistic language, I apologize. Uh, but but you, you see what I'm saying, like any kind of embodied divine essence that we see, I just go, that's Christ because Jesus says no one's seen the Father. And either all of these people have seen the Father or he's, he's giving them a hint. All of the God verses are about me. Um, uh, what, what say you to that? Fully on board, fully on board. Yeah, that's exactly what I say. So who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day who confronted Adam and Eve? That would be the son of God. Uh, who was, you know, the messenger? Who were all these other ones that you mentioned? Who's the the commander that appears to Joshua in those early church, early chapters of Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army? That's the son of God. I love so, it. So, yeah, say the same for, for, for the same reason of, that, that you indicated too. Yeah. Would you say the same for cleft of the rock? Show I'll pass by with just like a hint of my glory kind of deal. You'll see my backside. Would you go with Christophany on that or Theophany? Yeah, I would go with Christophany. Uh, basically, any any just just as you said, any visible manifestation that we have of okay. God in the Old Testament, I understand to be the Son because the Son is the one who reveals the Father. He who has okay. seen me has seen the Father. So okay. I, I read all of those just in the same way that uh, that you that you are you're describing. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I I love the ones especially where. The son of God is talking about himself. So, for instance, in Genesis 22, when he appears to, to Abraham after he stops the sacrifice, the messenger there, and, and then talks about how there's going to be a blessing by the seed of Abraham. I can just kind of picture him winking because he is going to be that that seed. Or uh, same when he appears to, to Jacob in, in the story, you know, the stairway leading to heaven. He's this is the son of God and he's he's appearing to Jacob. He's speaking to Jacob. And then. In John 1, in John 1, Jesus identifies himself as the stairway. He's the one that connects heaven heaven to earth. So it's really cool when you can see these appearances of the Son of God, and he's talking about the blessing that is to come or the seed that is to come, and realize, yeah, that's who it is. The very one speaking is the one who is going to be the fulfillment of that promise. Mm. Amen. Amen. So... You, you've talked about uh, Christophanes, you've talked about Christ as the seed, Christ as the exodus, Christ in the context of the sacrifice. Uh, you, you've talked about the patriarchs, Adam and, uh, well, not Adam, but uh, Abraham and, uh, and Sarai, uh, is, and you've mentioned Isaac and Jacob just in passing. But so, so we've seen these different places where the Messiah shows up, um, but there are more. Uh, you have a whole chapter in your book dedicated to the Psalms. So I'm interested in this one because I'm preaching through Psalms right now. Um, talk to us about Christ in the Psalms. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that you can approach uh, Christ in the Psalms. Um, I draw upon the imagery of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer a little bit, as well as as well as Augustine. I really like Augustine's uh, example. He talks about the head-body connection. And so he relates this to the Psalms in this way. He says, all the Psalms are about Christ in one way, one way or another. And I would, I would affirm that none of, there are no, you know, how many, how many Messianic Psalms are there? Some people will ask and I'll say, well, 150 at last count. That's, that's how many Messianic <laughs> Psalms are. So, but they were, they relate the Messiah in different ways. And so Augustine will use the head body analogy. And he says, some Psalms are head Psalms in the sense that they're directly talking about Christ, who is the head of the church. Other Psalms are talking more about the body of believers, but you can't have the body of believers without a connection to the head. So even Psalms that are talking about Israel or the church, the body of believers are also talking about Christ because of course we are, we are his body. 
And when you have that approach to the Psalms, all of a sudden, yeah, they, they open up as the prayers of Jesus or the prayers of the body of Jesus, because one way, one way or another, they are giving expression to who Christ is or giving expression to what his people, his people pray to him. And of course, over and over in the Gospels, you have Christ, the, the Lords of the, of the Psalms on the lips of Jesus. And basically all the major events from his birth all the way to his, his resurrection are punctuated with allusions to with allusions to to the psalms so that's the way that i read them and in fact i would i would argue that the opening two psalms are i like to call them kind of saloon doors swinging doors that open up to the whole house of the psalms and both psalm one and two are to be read as a as a unit and they introduce us then to who the messiah is and then are kind of preparing us for what we're going to encounter in psalm 3 through 150. Okay. I might ask a follow-up on that. So uh, your chapter is titled, The Psalms is a Prayer Book of Jesus and the Church. So Jesus the Head, the Church, the Body, and you kind of unpack that. But uh, maybe help us flesh that out with an example. Give us maybe an example of one of the Psalms where you can read it through both lenses and that it, and and doing so just kind of helps us see exactly what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah, you could take, uh, well, you take Psalm 3, for instance, which is the psalm that David prayed uh, during the, the, coup of, the coup of Absalom. It's a, it's a pretty short psalm, um, but I think both of these things are going on there. Number one, you have David speaking, and he's speaking about the rebellion of, in this case, his son, the rebellion of the enemy against him. Uh, so David is suffering, but it isn't just David who's suffering, because in the mouth of Jesus, the son of David, this psalm is a perfect representation of what Jesus himself endured when he was attacked by his enemies. But of course, it's also the prayer of anyone who in Christ suffers for mm -hmm. whatever the reason might be. Maybe it's persecution, maybe it's something else. And so you can pray, you can pray Psalm 3 as the prayer of David. You can pray Psalm 3 as the prayer of the son, prayer of the son of David. You can also pray Psalm 3 as the prayer of Christians who are in the son, in the son of David. And in that way, it becomes multifaceted. I mean, these aren't these aren't three contradictory ways of praying the psalm. They right. are three different ways of, of, of approaching it historically, Christologically or ecclesiologically. And they all kind of they all dovetail together. Yeah, it makes me think of in Acts chapter four, where the apostles are praying. They're praying Psalm two, which the way they mm -hmm. quote it, Psalm two was clearly fulfilled in Christ when Herod and Pontius Pilate rose up against the Lord and his anointed, but then they're applying it to themselves as the ones being persecuted so that Psalm 2 could, it's fulfilled in the persecution of Christ on the, against the head who is Jesus, but then it continues mm -hmm. being fulfilled in the church, the body, as they're praying this very Psalm about their own persecution. So that's kind of cool. I, I like yes. that. Yeah. If you in it. Yeah, I mean, you could add to that. Uh, I mean, this isn't in, in the Psalms, but look at Romans 16. Paul says the, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, I love that one. Well, he's using the language there of Genesis 3.15, which was fulfilled when the Messiah crushed Satan under his feet. But he's applying it to the church. He's saying that, you know, the God will crush Satan under, under your feet. So he's taking the words that are directly applicable, fulfilled by Christ, but he's also applying them to the ongoing life of the life of the Amen. church. And the Psalms do the same thing. Mm. I, you know, we're, we're at the port of our show where we've got to wrap up, but I, I've got to ask a question about communion. Um, 
because you had mentioned how we can look at the Old Testament and see altars and think of altars as a kind of a type of communion, which is very odd to me uh, because as a Lutheran, uh, there were these conversations early on in, in history with Luther and the church about like offering up to Christ, offering up Christ uh, like as a sacrifice in the act of communion, which gives me this altar image. So maybe you could unpack what you mean by that and seeing that type of communion in the Old Testament. That's something that we're all super passionate about here. Yeah, yeah. I'd I, I love to talk about the the... The Old Testament background of baptism, as well as the Old Testament background of, of the Lord's Supper, and there's lots of different ways that you can you can approach that. As far as the altar goes, um, the the altars of the Old Testament, of course, were primarily for sacrifice, although not exclusively, because you had the altar of incense, and even though sometimes blood was placed upon that, the altar of incense was not used as an altar for blood offerings; it was used as an altar for for incense. So altars use a couple different ways. And, and sometimes they are referred to as a, as a table. It's rare, but sometimes there's an altar table connection there. But I like to think of it as an altar because what is, what is present upon an altar in a church is that which was sacrificed upon the altar of the cross. And so even though our altars are not where a sacrifice takes place, they are the place where we receive the benefits of the sacrifice that was offered, was offered on the cross. I mean, body and blood are sacrificial categories. And that doesn't mean that in the Lord's Supper, there's a sacrifice being offered, but it does mean that the fruits of that sacrifice are being delivered from that altar into the mouths of, of the communicants. So that's that's the reason I use, I like the language of, of altar, but table's fine too. It doesn't really matter as long as we understand that what's happening at the table slash altar is not a sacrifice being made, but rather the fruits of that sacrifice being given in the here and now. So what was historically done now in the present being delivered to us so that we can receive Christ into us. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things I say when, uh, in my church, we partake in communion. I say that we receive, <clears throat> we receive afresh the benefits of Christ's death whenever we partake in communion. Uh, which, which doesn't mean that like I'm, I'm getting justified all over again or anything like that. But, uh, but I'll have us like last week, we, um, we confessed, repented and asked the Lord's forgiveness in the context of partaking of the elements. And so there's the original application of Christ's blood in our life justification, but then there's just ongoingly, I need Christ's blood every day. And, um, anyway, but I, I think of that whenever you talk about the, the connection of altar and communion. And I want to piggyback on it a little bit because uh, to ask you this, you said that we could we could go into further detail about baptism and communion and their Old Testament backgrounds. I think for a lot of our viewers, they think, you know, that they can what Old Testament background. Maybe they have a little bit of a context for that, like the Passover and the Lord's Supper. But but help them under uh, help our viewers understand uh, what are some of those Old Testament backgrounds for these two sacraments. Yeah, so uh, another one that I like to talk about with, especially with communion, is the bread of the presence. So within the holy place, you had three main articles of furniture. You had the the candelabra, and then you had the the altar of incense directly in front of the holy of holies. And then you had the, 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 the table that had the bread of the presence, literally in, in Hebrew, the bread of the face, because in Hebrew, to be in someone's presence is in their face. So this is the bread of the face, bread of the presence. Why? Because it's directly in the presence of God. And this bread was not just holy, it was most holy. There's two different categories in the Old Testament for holiness. There's holy and there's most holy. And if it's most holy, 
it communicates holiness. And this is the way that the priest would maintain ongoing sanctification. They would actually consume holiness by consuming this bread because this bread was imbued with the holiness of God. And so it conveyed to them in the very eating of this bread, the holiness that God wished to give to them. Now, I think that's a beautiful background for what the supper is because this is the bread of the presence of Christ. And through it, he gives us himself. And by giving us himself, he gives us what he is. And he is the holy, holy, holy God. And so this is one way in which God gives us, even in the here and now, this ongoing sanctification, ongoing gift of holiness in the bread that is the presence, the presence of Christ. And of course, the Passover, we could go there. There's a huge background to the Lord's Supper happening, happening there too. Now, as far as baptism goes, oh my goodness, I don't know where to begin. You can begin with the water creation. You could talk about uh, the crossing the Red Sea. You could talk about the crossing the Jordan. You can talk about the, the priestly ablution, the priestly washings in, in the tabernacle. You could talk about uh, the flood, if I didn't mention that. All of these are ways that God used water to do good things for his people. That's the way that I like to, to kind of summarize that. Just start with, all, go through all the water stories in the Old Testament, Naaman being cleansed of his skin disease, and see how God connected his promise to water so that through that water, that word water, we might say, God does great things for his people. I think that's the entire background of, of baptism. So that when you get to the New Testament, you hear about baptism, what are you hearing about? God doing things with water connected with his word, with his, with his promise. So that, that's just in general the way I like to approach the question of, of baptism and, and communion. Just start asking yourself, what is God doing through meals in the Old Testament? What is God doing through water in the Old Testament? And when you trace the trajectory of the meals and the water to baptism and communion, you're like, oh, I see. This is, this, is, this is why God is doing what he is in the ministry of Christ. He's been prepping us this entire time for what was finally going to be the, the acme of his work with words, with, with meals and with water. Praise God. Chad, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Can you maybe tell people how they can follow your podcast, how uh, they can pick up your books, the best way to kind of follow closely with your ministry if they, man, they're really interested in this. I know this is just a primer on the content that you uh, talk about constantly on your podcast and uh, that you do with your publishing. So uh, how do people connect with you? Yeah, the best place to go is to 1517.org. That's a hub of everything that uh, that 1517 does and that I do too. You'll find the podcast. You'll some, see some online 1517 Academy courses that I've taught on actually this subject on Christ in the Old Testament. I have two podcasts that are there and my books are listed there. All my materials are kind of in a hub there at 1517.org. Or if you're on social media, just uh, search for me. I'm on all the, the major networks. So you can find me there and interact with me there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you love this content, you want to be notified when you come out with content just like this, make sure to subscribe to the channel, like the video. But the best way to get all of the notifications is really going to be in the links of the description of this video. Uh, there is a, a link that you can sign up for our newsletter, get lots of uh, uh, updates on when we come out with stuff. We're not we're not spamming you. We send out an email kind of once a week, let you know uh, about our courses that have been developed. We'll let you kind of know uh, about the different kind of shows that we're going on going on. We have stuff that's going on in Patreon. Uh, so if you're interested, interested in getting some of that special access stuff, all that content can be found in the newsletter, uh, especially at the conferences that we have coming up in the future. So if you want to be updated for anything like that, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, without further ado, guys, we thank you so much for tuning into this program of Remnant Radio, and we'll see you next Monday or Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll see you then.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.